All right, we're going to get going. Let me, uh, before we get going, some of you have asked about, um, I've had a couple people ask, well, what do we do next year? We, we read through this year, and I'm not talking about on Wednesday night. I'm talking about just in general. And uh, now that you have read through the one-year Bible, those if you haven't done one-year Bible, you can obviously do the one-year Bible. But if you have, a different way to read through it is what they call the one-year chronological Bible. Okay? I've got one here. You can look at it if you'd like to. The, the difference in these... The difference is that this attempts as best as they know how to put it in chronological order. And so, for instance, Ezekiel is split up. Ezekiel and Jeremiah are split. So you read part of Ezekiel and then Jeremiah because those events are taking place around the same time, but Ezekiel and Jeremiah intertwine. And so you would read them kind of together, uh, first and second Samuel, first, second Kings, first, second Chronicles, they put there. They take Psalms, and if David, like Psalm 51, I would assume, would be around the time that David is confronted by Nathan about his sin, and so they put them in chronological order, so it reads from beginning to end. Now, there are obviously some books that they have a little different uh, difference with or difficulty with. One is Job, which is an undated book. They put it immediately after Genesis because there are a lot of people that think it happened during the time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, or even a little before them. There are some people that think it may have happened before them, which theologically has a couple issues. But um, So that is a different way to read through the Bible in a year. Okay, There are also, and over the next few weeks I can show you some things. Uh, if you want to go where you do Bible and some study, there are uh, one-year with studies. There's one-year um, with C.S. Lewis, for instance, that his kind of studies or... A year with A.W. Tozer, who was a great pastor. Short little bits, and then they take a Bible verse, you read that for the day, and then you read it. They make one-year um, companion, one-year devotionals that go along with the one-year Bible readings for the day. And so those are some different things as we are moving towards the end of the year. Okay, uh, We will meet next week, but the week after next we will not meet because that is the night before Thanksgiving. Um, so you do realize Thanksgiving is two weeks from tomorrow, right? And so we will miss one on uh, two weeks from tonight, which will be the 24th. And then we will not meet on the 22nd of December, okay? Those are the only two nights that we won't meet between now and the end of the year. We are going to meet on the night of the 29th, and we will meet with this study again after the first of the year, that first week. Because we'll meet on the 29th, and if you've got burning questions about Revelation, we can answer after that, all right? Uh, And then in the next couple of weeks also, um, we're going to be talking about maybe some ways that we can move forward on Wednesday night and and what you would like to see happen. And I'm going to actually give you some things to fill out or to think about and some ways that we can kind of move forward, all right? Let's go to Ezekiel, okay? Questions, thoughts, comments, things you like, didn't like, wondered about in Ezekiel. We started in Ezekiel 10, and we went to Ezekiel 22, right? Yes, he has. Ezekiel 14, where is that? That's, uh, yeah, right there, there are a couple of things there. One is Daniel would have already been in Babylon, 
with Ezekiel. Uh, Daniel was taken in that group of first leaders and young men and all of that. And so for the Hebrew people in exile, the scholars have a couple of thoughts about this. For the Hebrew people in exile in Babylon, Daniel would have been seen as their kind of spiritual figure. Okay, So he would have been their leader there. He, he's found a way into the government, but he's faithful to the Lord. He's turned the, you know, the ruler's attention. And so the question is how much of that has happened or whatever. But he was in that first group that went. Okay, um, <clears throat> So he would have been around. There's also an alternate spelling of that that's Danel, and it may be someone other than Daniel. But it really makes more sense if it's the most popular Daniel, right? Because the point he's making is, even if, and uh, he says, even if Noah, Daniel, and Job. So even if these big-time guys, and the only big-time Daniel we know from Old Testament is the Daniel from Babylon. So um, those are the kind of the couple of thoughts there. Yeah. Yeah. He is in this time with Jeremiah and Ezekiel. In fact, it's another book that if you read the one year chronological, it puts it all in there together. Because Daniel, you know, when Babylon came in, they took that first wave of captives and they took leadership and young potential and young guys. And they took Daniel as a part of that, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and that whole crew. So Daniel probably had made two or three of his monumental stands already here. So In Ezekiel? Oh, okay. Well, we're not to Daniel yet, Miss Dottie. You can't wait to get to Daniel. You've been talking about Daniel for three months. We're almost there, all right? I know you can. About three months. I mean, about, you've been waiting about three months. We've got about two weeks we'll be in Daniel. Yes. <laughs> Ezekiel gets much more hopeful as we go through in the next couple of weeks. Leslie, are you talking about like each individual one? Um, Ezekiel, the visions run from June 15th, 592 to March 16th, 572. So there's a 20-year period. Where we were discussing and talking about would have been uh, from his first. Um, this has all happened in the 590s BC. So, uh, from where the book starts to where we are now, about two and a half years have passed. Okay. Yes, Jack. Not as that. Um, not as that name, or not as the city of God. It had been a city. Uh, now, before Abraham, yet what he's saying is he took these people that were, um, what he's saying is he made them a nation. They were not a nation. But when he called Abraham out of the Ur of Chaldees as a Canaanite, he brought him to a place and brought these peoples together to create a new nation. And so that whole point that he makes there in that whole section is, Without me and what I have done for you, you are nothing. And you forget where you've come from, basically what he tells them. No, he's saying that Abraham is their lineage. But Abraham wasn't a... I mean, you know, the, the nation of Israel is named after a son of Abraham. 
It's not that Abraham came from Israel. Israel came from Abraham. And so what, what he's saying is that this group of people were, they, they, it wasn't like he went to a group of people that were already a nation and said, now you're my people. He created a people out of other nations or other peoples through Abraham and brought them. It is, here's the thing that, that struck me when I read this this time, Jack. It sounds much more New Testament in the way he describes the Gentiles being made into his people than I, than I think early Old Testament makes it. Uh, early Old Testament makes it sound very much like, well, Abraham had some children. They all had children. They had children, 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 and we had a nation. But God basically makes it sound like, no, I, I, have, I have taken you... I have created you as a special people that you aren't... I mean, yes, you trace back to Abraham, but when you trace back to Abraham, Abraham was one I called out of other nations to form a nation for myself. And so you are part of a special people. You can't say, well, but we go back to, or my ancestry dates back to. You say, no, we were created as a people for the Lord. The New Testament understanding of that is those of us that have become believers in Jesus Christ have been grafted into this family, into this nation. But once Christ dies and is resurrected, that nation is no longer a geopolitical boundary or even um, uh, an ethnic people. It is the body of Christ who are believers in Jesus. And so it is a grander scale of you've got these different things. The whole point he's making in Ezekiel is everything you have is because I have given it to you. And you have forgotten that and who you are, as do most scholars throughout history. Melchizedek is one of the most mysterious characters in Scripture because he has this seemingly innocuous journey in Genesis and moment that the book of Hebrews then elevates to a lofty position. We'll talk about that when we get to Hebrews. All right, anything else in Ezekiel during this time? Not really. I mean, there was a remnant. In, I mean, we'll get to Daniel. Obviously, Daniel was, Ezekiel was, Jeremiah was. There were pockets of people. Um, but no, they, they weren't following the Lord like they should. Uh, they, when I say they, the nation wasn't. Um, I mean, part of what we read this week was just God saying, and it's your fault, it's not mine. They had begun to say things like, um, well, if my parents' generation hadn't have done wrong, we wouldn't have done wrong. It started with them. So, interestingly, some of the same kind of arguments that are being made about young people today in America, well, it started in the 60s. And since the 60s, we've just kind of gone downhill. You know, I mean, that's a popular argument. And God's saying, no, 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 everybody is responsible for themselves and for their own generation. I think it is, um, I think when you move to the New Testament to be unequally yoked, which is the word used in the New Testament, means to uh, enter into marriage with an unbeliever. Um, I don't think there's any racial. I think the reason that he didn't want it here wasn't necessarily ethnic or racial. It was religious because intermarriage meant divided loyalties. And so what got Solomon in trouble was marrying these women with other gods, and he gave his heart to some of those other gods. What gave Israel in trouble when they married these other gods, they set up places on the high places and worshipped 
And he's just saying in that intimate relationship, you can't be a believer and an unbeliever and, and, and be moving forward. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't exceptions and that people haven't. I mean, my, when my parents married, my dad was an unbeliever. He was saved shortly thereafter. But uh, that as much as you can, you strive to be in a relationship it just says don't be, don't find yourself unequally yoked, and the the uh, emphasis in that passage, and I don't have that reference on the top of my mind right now, Wayne. But the emphasis in that passage is don't find yourself unequally yoked in intimate relationships, uh, in marriage. Uh, and Paul, you know, Paul in Corinthians dealt with people that found themselves accepting Christ and their spouse was an unbeliever, and he says to them, stay as you are. Don't get a divorce. Don't run away from them because by your testimony, they might come to know Christ. And so Paul's, Paul's kind of arguments seem to be on the front end, if you're a believer, find a believer for your mate. Once you're in the relationship, you're in the relationship and make it work as best you can. Now, if the unbeliever walks away, there's nothing you can do about that. But try to win them over by your grace and love and who you are. But I don't think in the new I don't think there's any racial connotations to that. Um, people have asked me about that. I mean that's that's a, an issue because the Old Testament brings it up so much. Uh, and people say, well, well what if what about your son? And I said I would much rather Eli marry an African American believer or a um a, Indian believer than a Caucasian unbeliever that causes them to fall in his walk with the Lord. I mean, the most important thing is their heart and who they are. So, yeah, yeah. If you're married to an unbeliever, you keep living, right? Tell Miss Dottie, you, you you don't happen to remember exactly where that reference is, do you? Yeah, it's been the last couple of days. I'm just trying to think. Yeah, the point that he's making in that first, where you describe that first passage, when he's saying that if you have a righteous dad and then you have a terrible son, there's no need to punish the dad for the son. And they all go, absolutely, you wouldn't do that. He said, but then if the terrible son has a grandson that turns out to be a guy that follows my heart, why would I destroy the grandson for the sin his dad committed? And that comes from early in the Old Testament, shall be the sins of the father shall be visited upon I think when you get to Ezekiel, what God is saying is that that's not saying that it's an absolute thing that if you sin, I'm not going to listen to your kids to four generations. What he's saying is your sin will impact the next generation. And we see that even in modern day with alcoholics whose children have more of a tendency that way or uh, patterns of abuse in a family that seems to be passed down. And so what he's saying is your sins will have consequences on the generations that come after you. But each generation, each person is judged individually on their faithfulness to me or on their belief, if you get to the New Testament, in me. And then, yeah, yeah, the good kings. And he, wouldn't, he didn't punish Josiah for his granddad and great-granddad and great-great granddad's uncle's bad stuff, right? So, right, that doesn't. Well, and one of the things he's saying there is it's going to be complete destruction. Now, he, he has said over and over that a remnant has been pulled out and a remnant will remain, 
but that the time has come there will be collateral damage because the nation has become so wicked. I'm not going to, as I did in the Passover, select a group of people and pass over. This is going to be complete destruction of Jerusalem. And if they don't get out, they're going to be there. Well, and he's, from God's perspective, he's given them hundreds of years. He's just what you have in Ezekiel is God's. That there, I think you could sum up this section. There's a a passion there where he talks about the proverbs that the people would say, and people would say, "A time is coming, and a time will arrive." And God says, "The time is here." What he's basically saying is, I have allowed, I have allowed, I have allowed, I have passed over, I have passed over, I have passed over, I will pass over no more. The time is here. Judgment has come. I am patient, but my patience has run its course. Now, as a parent, we say my patience run out. God's patience doesn't run out, but it has run its course, and it's time to... Um, Jerusalem begins being sieged in about a year, six months to a year, for the final time. And within three years, Jerusalem is destroyed. Anything else in Ezekiel? Yes, Cliff. Yeah. Here's an interesting thing about that verse. Uh, There's a book out now called, uh, I just forgot who wrote it, but um, you become what you worship. And remember when we did all that stuff about idolatry and Isaiah and the foolishness of idolatry? And he says they have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, they're idols, but they cannot hear. And what he's saying is you have become what you have worshipped all these years. You have become copies of the things you have worshipped. And so in the New Testament, it's still kind of going on. We get to today, we see people that have become... You know, people whose God is money become very greedy. People whose power, whose God is power, they become people that will step on whomever and they become arrogant and violent even. They're not. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And saying that you think you're okay, but you're, you're not. I mean, you had all these prophets in Jerusalem saying, Ezekiel's ridiculous. I mean... Remember, there's that one part where Ezekiel complains to God. They say, all I do is speak in riddles. That's all. That's what they think, God. Well, and God's point is, uh, they think that because to them you are. They can't hear you. They can't see you. They can't understand you because they've become so wrapped in who they are that they've forgotten me and aren't open to my instruction. Yes, Jack. I, I think that there's a dual fulfillment here as well. I think that people would to Jesus' time when the temple had been rebuilt, not in the state it once was, but the temple had been rebuilt. The nation of Israel had come together and were worshiping at the temple like they were supposed prescribed to do. Idols were not a part of that. I mean, once you get through with this exile, idols, in the sense that they had them here, are not an issue for the nation of Israel. And so I think there, but I definitely think it also looks forward for us to an ultimate fulfillment. Uh, in the end of time. They do a lot of crazy things. I mean, a lot of their idols. Uh, Ezekiel did have a couple of dramatic sermons here, right? He had to pack up like an exile and crawl through the hole in the wall. Uh, It's kind of interesting. 
Um, there is that long passage in there that sounds like a scorned lover writing about their love, uh, that God writes to the nation of Israel, which really, if you just pulled it out of the Bible and you took out the historical kind of name references, is a beautiful piece of writing about a scorned lover. And that's the way God portrays himself with his people, um, that he had taken them as a bride. Nobody else would have them, and he did. And He gave. there's that part where he says, and I gave you all this gold, and all you did with it was make other idols. And then he says, you've become worse than prostitutes because you pay the other people. They're not paying you. You, you know, it, it's just, he gets very, you know, it sounds just like a heart that has been broken. So, all right. Let's move to Hebrews. Book of Hebrews. Since nobody has any questions about chapter 6 and what it means to fall away from the Lord, we'll just move on to something else. I know you were, Mr. Reese. All right, Hebrews chapter 6. Yeah. Hebrews chapter 6, especially the first part of it, is perhaps, it's not perhaps, it is one of the most difficult chapters in the Bible to fully explain from a Baptist theological perspective, okay? Or from a traditional evangelical perspective. Um, because it talks about falling away in there. Well, what does it mean? Um, I uh, have read some on it this week. I, what I have to understand and what I try to do is not to come at the passage like a Baptist minister because I come with presuppositions and thoughts about what I want it to mean. We have to recognize that with the Bible sometimes. We come already wanting it to mean something, but I want to know what it means and not what I want it to mean. Um, there's a great commentary on the book of Hebrews. Some of you that teach Sunday school, if you ever have to teach Hebrews, this is by George Guthrie. Who George Guthrie has a special place in my heart. First of all, he taught me at Union. He did my New Testament. He's actually teaching Emily Chambers this semester in Hebrews. Uh, on top of that, he's from Dyersburg, First Baptist Dyersburg. His mother was one of my Sunday school teachers and the first person to greet us when we joined First Dyersburg. And so he's from Dyersburg. He's got to be really smart and really good, right? And so he wrote, and if you're ever teaching on the Hebrews, what I like about this is a good commentary series called the NIV Application Commentary. What I like about it is he gives you original meaning, bridging context, and then contemporary significance. So this is what it means. He goes into words. And sometimes you, when you're teaching Sunday school, you could say, I'm going to skim that a little bit. Bridging context, kind of issues today. And then what does it mean today? And so it's a really good uh, thing. He, he tells this story, which, you know, it's be interesting to have been there, that he was at San Francisco at a professional meeting with three other New Testament scholars. And somehow Hebrews 6, 4 through 8 came up. And they spent an hour between the four of them discussing it. And he gives the major positions that people come down on. Let me tell you this as a background before we get to that, those positions. Hebrews, really the end of Hebrews 5, verse 11, through Hebrews 6, um, verse 12, okay, is kind of um, what we call in preaching chasing a rabbit. All right? 
Anybody ever known a preacher to chase a rabbit? Not not your current one, but other ones, right? Right. And we, we, we've heard of people chasing rabbits, right? Chasing rabbits means you kind of get off track a little bit. And so the book of Hebrews has been going along talking about Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus isn't a priest in the class of Melchizedek. Oh, and wait a minute. I would love to tell you more about Melchizedek. But, he tells him in verse 11, it's hard to explain because you are slow to learn. Now, uh, I'll just tell you, slow to learn there is a tough term. It means because you are sluggish, dull, a dimwit, negligent, or lazy. None of those are complimentary terms. He says, but you're a dimwit, all right? And so we can't. In fact, you ought to be teaching, but you're not. You need elementary truths. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is is not acquainted with the teachings about righteousness. Solid food is for the mature. So he's saying, you've got problems, all right? You haven't moved past where you were. And then he comes to verses 1 through 4, or 1 through 6, really, and says, And if you're not careful, what will be discovered is that you don't really have faith at all. That you have fooled yourselves into thinking that you have faith by the external things you are doing. And so there's... I'm not happy with you. Here's a warning. But at the end he says this, like a good preacher, but I have all the confidence in the world that you're going to make the right decision and that you are who you say you are. Okay? Now, in the middle of that, so it's kind of like a little brief sermon in the middle of this complicated discussion of Melchizedek. He says, I I want you to understand, this is serious business. I don't know that you're ready for serious business. You ought to be. You're not yet. You need to check and make sure you are a believer in Jesus Christ because there are things that appear that you are, but I don't see any growth in your life. But I'm confident that it will be. Now, in the middle of that, he says this, verse 4 of chapter 6 of Hebrews. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age. Okay? Here's what I want you to see. This is a passage that Dr. Guthrie had us diagram. Anybody remember diagramming sentences? You remember that? You think that's fun in English. You do it in Greek. All right? I diagram this in Greek. Okay? And you can see it in the English, but... The Greeks didn't care about just piling up these clauses, okay? These these uh, uh, modifying phrases. And so you have, it is impossible for those, and then it gives four qualifying phrases. Who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God. If they fall away, to be brought back to repentance because to their loss they are, they are crucifying the Son of God and subjecting Him to public disgrace. And here's the thing. Just on face value, 
those four qualifications sound like what believers are. Enlightened, touched by the Holy Spirit, partaken in the heavenly gift, tasted the goodness of the Word of God. And then it says, if those people fall away, they can't come back. Now, there are lots of people that say, well, see, that teaches that what the Baptists believe, once saved, always saved, is just wrong. What those people generally don't like to admit, it also teaches that if you fall away, you're done. This isn't a, I fell away and I came back and I backslid and I came back and I backslid and I came back. It's a, if that's true, what they're saying is true, once you've accepted Christ and then you fall away, whatever that means, you're done. You get what I'm saying there? I mean, so it doesn't fit neatly in anyone's theological box. Okay? Here are the four or five or six and a half views of this. All right? One is called the hypothetical view. That it is a preacher tactic of rhetorical impact. Now that sounds like a good scholarly phrase, right? That it is a tactic by the preacher to scare the people. Now, preachers don't do that, right? Yeah, yeah, some some do. But it's like he's saying, listen, listen y'all need to understand, this is serious business. And I would hate for y'all to miss out on stuff. So it's a rhetorical impact. It's hypothetical. And let's just say someone could lose their salvation. If they did, they couldn't get it back. The problem with that is that's not how it sounds. Okay. The other one is the pre-conversion Jew. That there were Jews that were thinking about it, but hadn't come to it yet. And what he's saying is, if you get right up to the line of accepting Christ and you reject it, that's your last opportunity. Okay. Um, another is called the covenant community view. That what he's speaking about here is what he's speaking about in Ezekiel. He's not talking about individuals. He's talking about a community of believers. And what he's saying is, you, if you fall away as a community of believers, you're not going to be able to get back to your standing in the community. Like the Israelites, he said, you're about to be destroyed. Okay. Uh, another view is called uh, believer, true believer, and this is judgment, not losing salvation, but harsh judgment from God. So think about 1 Corinthians. They made it, but as if through fire and everything was burned up, so their works were burned up. That's a view. Um, um, some people like that. Uh, another is called, this is uh, an interesting one, the feminological true believer view. Feminological, that's not feminine, that's phenomenal. I don't know. Blah, 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 blah. P-H-E-N-O-M-E-N-O-L-O-G-I-C-A-L. You got that, right? It's better than... This is one of those things preacher probably shouldn't say, but I'll say it anyways. Yesterday we were watching kids programming with the kids, and they have a word of the day they spell out for you, and they started spelling the word of the day, C-O-N-S-T-I-P-A-T-I-O-N. 
that icky feeling you get when you can't go potty. Well, no, what are these PBS kids? What, you're watching Barney, and they start doing that as a spelling word, all right? Um, so the phenomenological true believer view, he says that this is what this is a, a guy named Scott McKnight that Dr. Guthrie likes a lot, but he doesn't like this view a lot. Um, they were true regener- believers who have lost their relationship with Christ and cannot anticipate salvation. So they experienced some of the phenomena, phenomenological, phenomena of salvation, but they aren't assured of the promise of salvation. Okay? Then this is what Dr. Guthrie proposes. The phenomenological unbeliever view. And this is where I generally come. That these are people in the community who walk the walk, talk the talk, on committees in the church, have um, raised their hand to volunteer for stuff, cook spaghetti when spaghetti needs to be cooked, clean the place when the place needs to be cleaned, but have never had a real experience with the Lord in salvation. And so they've got all the external markings of a believer, but they are in fact not a believer. And those people have so assured themselves that they have a relationship with Christ that it has hindered them from actually having a relationship with Christ. That's where Billy Graham gets his statistic that 60 to 65%, some places, some people say up to 75% of people in church today are unbelievers because they may have all the um, trappings of a believer, but they don't have a personal relationship with the Lord. Cliff, you've been waiting. I do. I, I think that when people talk about the conundrum that, that 4 through 6 brings, they forget 9 and 10 and 11. Uh, because he says, even though we thought about it, but we want you to know that we're confident of better things, things that accompany salvation, that you have actually tasted and that it is real. Now, that doesn't mean that what I have just given is an easy explanation. But as you said, Miss Teresa, in light of the rest of Scripture, I don't think you can base an entire doctrine on three verses when the rest of Scripture speaks in a different manner. And in the Greek, the language there used in those clauses, those four statements, is very... Um, it's ambiguous at best. It's, it's not... It's not clear about what is meant there. They, they use phrases that can mean a lot of different things. And that's as good as I'm going to answer it. So if you've got other questions about that one, we'll move on. And, and John would say, if you keep on sinning, then you need to check your salvation, basically. You haven't become one of us. And I think that's what... Because what you have here is people that are wanting to go back. And what Jesus is saying is, if they really fall away then they never were here, I don't think, And what the writer of Hebrews. If they, if they want to leave Jesus to go back to the Hebrew system, then that means they never fully invested. I, I was listening yesterday on the radio going to the, uh, the minister's alliance meeting here in Goodlettsville, and I was listening to a sports talk radio, and they were talking to a comedian. I don't know why they were doing that, but Fungus comedian, and he just read a book, and he's a guy that people don't necessarily think of for religious stuff. He said, and the 
posted, there's a lot of religious stuff in here. And he just said something that struck me. He said, he said, well, we had to deal with my, that my family because my wife came home one night and said, I was pulled into a room, some ladies prayed for me, and I was born again. And he said, I was like, you were what? He said, and for a while she thought she was born again. And we had to move past that. Now, here's what, either she was born again or she thought, saying a phrase or agreeing with some ladies in a room that were praying for her made her born again. Um, One of the most difficult things that I do as a pastor is talk to children and try to determine if they understand what they're saying when they say, I've accepted Jesus as my Savior. And I take that very seriously. Because I don't want to give false assurance, but I also don't want to hinder a heart that's ready. I don't want somebody when they're 25 to say, but I went and talked to that preacher, and that preacher told me I was saved, and so I don't have to do anything when their life has shown no fruit. And it was, they said a phrase, or they said a prayer, or people say, well, do they have to understand everything? I said, no, I don't understand everything. Did you understand everything when you accepted the Lord? Absolutely not. But I knew the basics of it. And so that's what I'm saying. And as Baptists, we're bad about, hey, let's get them down the aisle. Let's talk to them. Let's get them in the water. Let's get all that done. Instead of, you know, in the early church, you had to wait a year before being baptized. You had to go through a class. You had to be watched. You had to be evaluated. And if they, at the end of the year, said, you're not ready, you had to wait. So... I don't know how we got there from where we were, but we got there. I'm chasing rabbits. I don't know any preachers that do that. All right. That's that's in the Didache, not not in the New Testament, but after the New Testament, the apostles and some others wrote some, some teaching materials, and one of them is called the Didache. It, it even says things in there about how to baptize and says if you um, that you ought to baptize in a river in, in full immersion, but if you can't do that, it, it, you pour water and it tells you how to do that. They they baptize. Most tradition says they baptized them three times, front facing, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, but you went through a year process uh, until, but not as a baby. No, no, yeah, but but we don't live in that kind of world today. I mean, we we fill up. I mean. Yes, in, in a remote tribe of Africa that doesn't have running water. Yeah, the, it was an exception case. It wasn't even sprinkling. It was sprinkling is it was pouring full water to cover their entire body. They were to be immersed in water without being immersed. But so a person made a declaration of faith in Christ, public profession, and then they waited. In, in Anabaptist life, which was kind of the founding of Baptist life during the Reformation, there was a waiting period. The farther we've moved away from that, the more we've condensed it. There you go, church history thrown in there on top of stuff. All right, what else in Hebrews? You had a question, Leslie, that we already talked about it? You know, you have that story in Genesis where Abraham goes to Melchizedek, so this would have been before the tribe of Levi, that, that he goes and gives a tithe unto Melchizedek. Okay. And so 
that's all that's really there in Genesis. I mean, there's not a whole lot. He's the king of Salem, but he's also receiving uh, things. Melchizedek, the name means king of righteousness. That's what Melchizedek means in literal terms. So you have this thought process. Was this a, uh, what, what is it? I mean, you, you know, in Genesis just kind of shows up. The author of Hebrews takes and makes that a type because apparently in kind of Hebrew theology, Melchizedek had become somewhat of a uh, supernatural or spiritual presence that uh, predated the nation of Israel and had a direct relationship with God. And so what he's doing is tearing down all... These are Hebrew people that have come to know Jesus and that are thinking about going back to their Hebrew ways. He's tearing down all of their possible heroes. Abraham, Melchizedek, Moses, priests, angels. Jesus, what he keeps saying is, why would you go from better to worse? And so Melchizedek, he basically says, this mythical figure we don't know much about is as close as we can get to Jesus. But Jesus has offered the sacrifice that never has to be worried about again. So Hebrews elevates it a little more than what we see in Genesis. Now that may have been popular teaching. That may have been what people were saying. But we don't have that evidence other than in Hebrews. Just that in Genesis he was the king of Salem and was some kind of special connection with God before the nation of Israel formed. Anything else in Hebrews? All right. It's 10 till 7. It's time to go. We only have four or five more times to meet together, and we will be done with the entire Bible. Some of you have been here through the whole year. Some of you are relatively newcomers or complete newcomers. All right. If you, some, I see some of you that haven't been here either in a while or haven't been here uh, at all. Just tell you that we're walking through the Bible together on Wednesday nights. If you want to be a part of the discussion next week, uh, you want to write down these things to read. If not, you can just act like you're writing something down or not worry about it, all right? Ezekiel, we're going to read Ezekiel 23. And then next uh, Wednesday, it, we finish. I just lost my place there with Ezekiel 36. So 23 to 36 is where we'll be in Ezekiel next week. We're going to read the rest of Hebrews this week. So that's Hebrews 10 all the way through the end of the book, which is just about three chapters. And uh, we will not talk about James next week unless we just have lots of extra time. But we'll start James next Wednesday, actually. So, So we'll be in Ezekiel for couple more weeks. Yeah, if you want to use a regular Bible, you can go to godsightings.com or oneyearbible.com. It'll give you what we're reading day by day. Okay? So you can join in with us. You don't have to, you don't think you've got to catch up. It's a little kind of late to catch up unless you want to read a thousand pages tomorrow. It's a little late to catch up, but just join where we are. Okay? There'll be some discussion that we'll go back on and say because we talked about this, but for the most part, and we're getting to some really exciting stuff. In the next few weeks, James, uh, which is really good, uh, Revelation, which you're looking forward to, many of you. Um, in the Old Testament, like I've said, Daniel's coming up, Hosea's coming up, Jonah's coming up. So we're going to be getting to some good stuff, all right? Um, that's it. Have a great week.